forge your inner armor. Welcome to the Inner Armor Podcast with Dr. Timothy Royer, where we explore ways to train our brains and bodies to become dynamically resilient so that we can all, from professional athletes to ordinary people, perform at our potential. Well, welcome to the Inner Armor Podcast. We're here with Dr. Royer. Hey, it's good to see you, Greg. We're joined again today by a very special guest. Tracy Hansen is an elite golfer, LPGA a star for many, many years. In fact, just to give you a little bit of introduction to her career, Tracy began playing golf when she was nine years old in northern Idaho. She was a multi-sport athlete, and she went to play her collegiate golf at San Jose State University, where she won 10 collegiate titles and was a member of the 1992 NCAA National Championship team. She was a four-time All-American and three-time academic All-American at San Jose State University. During her amateur career, she captured numerous titles, including the 1989 Women's Western Junior Championship and the 1991 U.S. Women's Amateur Public Links Championship. In 1991, she was the low amateur at the U.S. Women's Open, and she was a member of the 1992 U.S. Curtis Tup team. She joined the LPGA Tour in 1993 and played 15 years on the tour. After that, she has been involved in some very interesting ministry projects and working with other athletes. I'm sure she's going to talk to us some about that today. And she has recently begun playing a bit in the senior tour. And maybe she'll tell us a little bit about that as well today. So we are excited to have Tracy. Tracy, welcome to the Inner Armor podcast. It's great to be with both of you. It's good to just have a chat with Dr. Royer. We've known each other, I think we said 14 years now. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. In our last episode, Doc, you and Tracy were talking about the work actually that you began doing 14 years ago. And and Tracy, you talked a lot about the ways that, that Doc worked with you in your playing career and how that impacted you not only on it, but off the course. And today, we want to follow up on that conversation a bit and go a little bit deeper into the ways that getting greater control of your autonomic nervous system and the upstream factors that we talked about last time how that impacted life both on and off the course. And so uh, I look forward to our conversation exploring that a little bit more today. Yes, we had such a good talk in the last podcast. And if you haven't heard it, you got to go back and listen to it. Really good stuff in there. So I think to start off, though, I'm going to throw you a little curveball here, Tracy. Okay, okay I'm ready. Be ready for that. Okay. Can you, t- <laughs> Can you tell the users... What it was like when I caddied for you. Oh, um, <laughs> yeah, so 2009, down in Florida, the doc was my caddy for a Symmetra Tour event. And I wasn't necessarily in the best place with my game and attitude. But doc was very, you were very positive. You were very encouraging. And I had to draw you back from your daydreaming a few times. Shit. 
I remember we were all up on the green and I'm just kind of looking off in space and you're pointing at me. You're like, move, move. You're in somebody's life. <laughs> and this poor golfer like there to try to win. And you're like, I think you spent more time babysitting me on that course. Oh, that was, and that was exhausting. But, oh, what an experience. That was funny. I, I have a lot of moments that even to this day, I just crack up thinking, what was Tracy doing letting me out on that? <laughs> yeah, it was fun. It was good to have you there. And maybe you've learned a few things in the last 14 years. Maybe I'll call you back in in one of Who these knows? senior events. Yeah. So are you doing, you're doing some senior events. I've been doing a little bit. Our, our Legends Tour starts at 45. And okay. so I did play a few of those when I turned 45. And funny story, which will probably leapfrog us into something. When I played my first LPGA Senior Championship, so it was maybe 2017, 18, maybe 17. I'm like, I've been through counseling. I'm in a good emotional space. I know how to breathe on the golf course. I can do this. This should be easy. <laughs> well, I showed up at the Pete Dye course at French Lick, which is a monster of a course for anybody. But when you haven't been playing a lot and I had one of my worst rounds in my career and I was so like everything, all those bad things that I used to do, yeah. that my body used to do, it just came rolling back. And I was, I mean, the... I just beat myself up. I was angry. I was, I was never going to play golf again. I mean, I was just a, I was like a psychopath of like after this round. And so I realized like, hmm, I need to get back into my neurofeedback. <laughs> Probably got a call right after that or something, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Tune up my equipment. Oh my goodness. But isn't that interesting how those things come back in our lives? I think it's when we ignore them. Then all of a sudden they're like, oh, there that thing is again. And it's a constant thing. Even when you've sharpened it and done as much work as you have, it's important that we're maintaining it right over time. Yes. Has that, has that changed more as you played a little bit more? Do you feel like you're starting to get in the groove some with the legends? Yeah. I mean, the hard part about our women's senior golf right now is we don't have that many golf tournaments. Mm. And so I, I repeatedly tell people when they get very enthusiastic that I'm playing again, I'm like, but you don't understand. Like whether I play one tournament or 10 tournaments, it's the same amount of prep. Yeah. And so that could be 20 to 30 hours a week on top of a full-time ministry job of trying to get ready, physically ready for a golf tournament. And then trying to do mental work as well when you're not playing full-time. It's, it's really hard. So I think each year that I've played, I am getting a little bit better at being more self-aware, noticing what my body's doing, all the things I'm working on with athletes that I currently counsel and mentor. I'm actually working on them myself too. Mm, that's great. Can you tell us a little bit more about kind of what you're currently doing and and the kind of different things that you see in this space that you're in, which, I mean, you've walked in the shoes of many of these people in some way or another. And what, tell us a little bit more about this. This is really cool what you're doing. Yeah. So the ministry work or the nonprofit work is I, I really just service myself as a counselor or a mentor to mm -hmm. elite athletes. But because I'm a golfer, I can get direct access to the Epson tour. And, and these are the ladies that are chasing their dreams to get onto the LPJ tour. 
and they really have little resources. And so I do all the resource driven and so that I can be there for free for them. Mm, and so awesome. I show up and I'm just there, whatever conversation or however I can walk alongside them. So whether it's about golf or life, stuff on the course, off the course. And, and because I'm a golfer, a lot of them will start the conversation around golf and what, what they're dealing with as they're trying to play these tournaments. Can you just kind of shed a little bit of light for those of us that have never been in that space? where you're chasing, moving from one tour to another. What are some common things going on in, I mean, there's just some basic survival things going on, right? But can you speak to that a little bit, what that space is like or has been for you or what you see with the people who are trying to do that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot has changed over the last 14 years since I left the tour. And I think one of those things is that the pressure has probably is tenfold Mm-hmm. more on these golfers. Getting on the LPGA Tour is one of the hardest things to do in golf. Same with the PGA Tour, that qualifying school or that jumping to that next level is is the hardest thing to do. And that really is just about a series of tournaments that you have to be on your game like to perfection three weeks out of the year in order to earn that next status to move up the tour. So... With the Epson Tour level, and it would be the Corn Ferry level equivalent on the Men's Tour, there's not a lot of money that they're playing for. It's getting Mm. better every year, but really less than, I don't know, 5%, 3% are actually making a living. Mm. And so that's number one pressure. It's like, how are you going to financially sustain yourself? I have conversations with girls like, well, I have to choose either Q school and pay $5,000 or not go to Q school and play the last five tournaments because they can't do both. And when you're trying to get on the LPGA tour, I mean, that's a lot of roadblocks in the So financial pressure. And then the girls on the Epson tour are fantastic golfers. Mm-hmm. They, even in the last four years, five years that I've been traveling with them, the cut lines are going lower and lower and lower. And so if you're not breaking par, if you're not shooting one under, two under, you're not making the cut. Wow. Yeah. So talent is deeper and broader, financial stress, the traveling stress. A lot of those girls can't afford to fly. So they're driving long distances between events. They're staying with private families as host families, which is great. And when you do that week after week after week, there's an added element of energy that's involved and so they're tired and then it gets to a point where if you do that for a few years then the questions are like well how long can i keep doing this right what else but but i don't know what else i'm going to do and and especially for the foreign players what a lot of people don't realize is that they're they're playing in america on a particular visa and if they're not playing golf in a golf tournament they actually have to leave the country on that visa Wow. Okay. Yeah. So there's so many elements out there on tour that are are like taking energy or driving this negativity towards these golfers when they're really just trying to get better every day. Yeah. And you've chosen to step in this space, raise funding for yourself, 
to, so it doesn't cost them more. So it's not one more thing like I got to pay for somebody to, to help me kind of process this. And it sounds like you see a lot of people who are experiencing pretty significant levels of stress. Large levels of stress. And a lot of, a lot of the questions I get are, oh, are you Tracy? You're the one that, you know, we can talk to. I'm like, yeah, well, I'm having a lot of anxiety on the golf course. Mm. That's probably the number one phrase that I hear. I've had a couple people that have actually had real panic attacks and I wasn't on site at that time, but we had already developed a relationship. And so they called me and I, on through FaceTime, I basically Mm -hmm. helped them walk them down off of this panic attack and they had to go play in an hour. (laughs) Wow. So stress and anxiety are, and even some depression, lots of conversations around depression. Yeah. Cause you're, kind of backed into this corner, it sounds like, on a lot of different levels. And like we know in depression that there's like a learned helplessness if you're not, don't have some type of control in your life. And it sounds like there are a lot of different variables that are taken out of control for those individuals. So when they're they're having these like panic attacks, there are they talking about different physiological things that are going on? What are some things that they talk about? Yeah, so... Let me let me kind of dissect this two ways. One, a lot of conversations come at me and say, I'm feeling anxiety on the course. Can you just help me figure that out? Yeah. They just want the the quick answer. Give me the the thing I need to think about or the thing that I can do as a a fix. Yeah, the uh, one the one sim- the one simple hack, right? Right, right. Which golfers don't do that at all, right? And so in that case, the question is, it's like, well, what what do you mean you're having anxiety? How does that feel? How does that show up in your body? How do you know mm. you're having anxiety? And then we start talking about some of those physiological things like fast heart rate, tightness, maybe even heaviness, hard to breathe, all show up. And then on the other extreme, when there's an actual panic attack happening, it's usually they can't breathe and their heart's racing really, really fast. Do you remember when you were, I mean, you're still playing, but do you remember any times in your career where you felt anxiety at that level or something similar to that? I don't think I ever have had a full-blown panic attack. Mm -hmm. And I have had moments where my heart was like running so fast and feeling like it's pounding outside of my body that I I almost went into a mantra Mm. and to get it. So I didn't understand what was happening, but I was just trying to figure out something like down the, down the middle of the fairway, you're going to hit it down the middle of the fairway, down the middle of the fairway. (laughs) And so for me, I didn't really understand the breathing for the majority of my career, which I wish I would have, but I did use scripture or things that I could repeat in my head to help calm me down. So when you initiated some of these breathing things that we learned, decreased the stress baseline with the neurofeedback, how did that play into your management of your personal management of any anxiety and stress that you're experiencing? Yeah, so those initial years when I was transitioning out of golf, I think, um, and I was still working with you on a regular basis. And then I was working with you in the job and helping assess athletes and regular people and running neurofeedback sessions for people. 
that all made me nervous and anxious. Like you would ask me to do things. I'm like, I can't do that. (laughs) And so the breathing, I think number one, breathing for me over the last decade has helped me in places where I feel uncomfortable in a group situation. And I just focus on my breathing, calm myself down. Cause I'm kind of, I'm actually kind of a shy person and Mm. more of an introvert. So groups can really be overwhelming for me. And, or I've done more speaking over the last eight years. And so I used to get really, really nervous before I had to speak. I hated public speaking. And now I'm kind of like, oh, I'm just going to breathe a little bit. I'm, I, I'm feeling a little nervous. I, that's okay. It's okay that it's there. And then I get up in front of people. And once I start, I'm, I like just ro- roll right into the flow of whatever I'm speaking about. That's awesome. I remember we did a video last year and I, I had allotted a block of time because I thought we'd do a few takes with you. And it was like, take one. You did it perfectly and we were done in 10 minutes. I'm like, wow, that was pretty impressive just right off the shoot. But I wonder maybe if you'd done some of your breathing, that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so that, that breathing, how might that play out? I assume that there's times that you're over a putt, right? And you're feeling anxious, right? I know I am. I was in a golf outing a couple of weeks ago and for all the marbles, I had a three foot putt and I missed it. Right. And I was thinking, 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 thinking about the putt. Like, why was I thinking about, it? but do you, do you experience that? And when you're in that situation, what would you do over a putt with your breathing or even kind of taking note of your awareness of your physiological well-being in that moment? How might that be different? I think I mean, a great example really is the U.S. Senior Open last summer for me. We were in Dayton, Ohio, playing a really hard golf course. And it was like, wow, this is like a real tour event again. Mm. And I I think I went in and out of being really focused and really attentive. And then moments where I was really nervous. And for me, I think the breathing, paying attention to what my body's feeling helped me come back out of those really nervous and states where I was starting to drift away sooner and more often. Mm-hmm. And so maybe I'm not there every shot or all the time, but I'm aware it's helping me be aware that when I'm not, and so I can pull myself back. And with the putting, it was it was quite fascinating, really. Not in always a positive way, but like my first couple rounds, the first day and the second day, I putted amazing. And I was I was breathing well. I was calm. I was walking slow around the greens. I, my eyes were visually seeing the breaks, and they were really hard, undulating greens. Yeah, and really fast. And then I made the cut, and I was like in the top 25 on Saturday. And I lost all of that on the greens. And I really struggled on Saturday and Sunday with my putting. I mean, I I almost got the yips. And so all of that happened in four days, like same golf tournament. Same person, same Same course, same course, (laughs) same. And so from now that, I mean, we've been doing this for 14 years, right? Talking about physiology of golf and the upstream, not just, I mean, you've hit millions of putts and you were just killing them those first two days. 
how would you maybe analyze what was going on from the upstream, not hitting a putt? Right. Going back to, when I talk about upstream, we're talking about the neurological affects my physiological, which then affects my emotional and my thought process. And then eventually my behavior, which is strike hitting the ball in the putt. So what would you say? What do you think was going on? I mean, you still knew how to putt, right? Right. First and foremost, I got stuck in that behavior mm. place. And so I was more in that outer realm of like, I need to adjust my setup. I need to adjust my mm. hand position. And I, and I almost even lost touch with that. Like things were just, nothing felt good. And so I was kind of like drawing for something in space that I couldn't hang on to. Now that I look back, I can see where my, because I was nervous, I was in this place where I haven't been in over a decade. I'm playing with, I'm not near the lead, but I'm like, I'm like, I'm there. And my brain, I could tell my brain was just going on rapid fire and I couldn't slow down my thoughts. And which means for me, I know that my, I'm stuck up there in that high beta brainwave, that fast moving brainwave that we've talked about in other episodes. And that's, it was out of that place that everything was happening. And so I didn't do what I know I need to do. And that is to really focus on my breathing, walk slower, notice what I'm feeling and where in my body am I feeling it and let it be there. And let it let that nervous system have time and space to process it rather than just keep pushing it away, pushing it away, pushing it away. Would you say that's a, a common thing that you see in golfers or maybe even just professional athletes is that their bodies might be telling them things that they're ignoring, kind of like dials on your dashboard? Would you say you see that? Yeah, I think it's it's across all sports and all elite athletes that I, it goes back to what I said in the other episode of like where we're, athletes are really good about training their bodies, training their muscle, building a bicep mm-hmm. or or grooving a skill motion, whether it's a free throw, a golf swing, a putt stroke. And we do that from that outer rim but we never get in touch with what our body's feeling while we're doing that. Yeah. And so then how do you tap into that if you don't, if you've never paid attention to it or you've never even thought about it? And it may actually start to, well, it does come in conflict, right? With your performance. If that thing starts going into a self-protective method where it's trying to protect the body, it could care less about your pot or your what's going on because it's in that sympathetic fast state. And the tendency is to, I thought it was so fascinating when you're talking about these golfers that are coming in with anxiety or panic attacks and they, they would like a fix. Like, what's the thing I do? And we have a culture that we're looking for a pill for every ill. Like what, what's this pill I can take? And you're talking about a skill that you have to develop that has an awareness of what's happening upstream that isn't just something in Google. Like when I was on this golf outing, I was having problems with my pitching, right? So 
I'm immediately on YouTube. <laughs> Six ways to improve your pitching. Like, and I'm, I'm just wanting one guy to say, do this, and that's going to fix my pitch, right? And that, I, I think a lot of golfers are doing that. Like, okay, I'm going left with my drive. So what do I need? How do I need to change this one thing? But you're talking about, that's not something you pick up in like one three-minute YouTube. This is a process. Like, I mean, what did it take for you to start to really connect when we started that training 14 years ago with that awareness? How long do you think that took? Well, with the breathing, I worked on it every day because I'm kind of the, I don't know what word you'd put to a dog. Perfectionist. There you go. There's the Um, word. (laughs) And so, but it still took six to eight weeks before I really even had this like, oh, I get it. I'm starting to get it. And that was like working every day, multiple hours a day, thinking about it, training it, practicing it. The neurofeedback as I'm sure you've shared on other podcasts is that's something we can't consciously change. I mean, that we need that feedback system to help us help our nervous system understand that it can relax and slow down. And yet, I think for me, the better I got at that breathing, at that paying attention, then my nervous system responded to that too. Mm. And... I think because I had a lot of other life situations happening and I hadn't addressed my trauma story yet, I don't, I don't think I was fully capable of engaging on in depth with what my body was feeling until I started getting more honest with my story and yeah. how I've gotten to where I, I am. And that's a kind of an upstream thing too, right? So we all live in the space that we live in today as a product of our past experiences. Yeah. The phrase that I use a lot is our unresolved past is our present. Right. And so in the, in the last episode, we talked about when we looked at your brain, we saw all that high beta in there, which is for the listeners don't know what that is. That's your brain can run at different speeds and there's a speed at which your brain runs when it's in crisis, when it's running from a lion, we can learn to kind of, As you said last episode, that can be kind of normal for us that we're just like lion chasing high beta 200 miles an hour all the time in our brain. But when you when you looked at that number and you saw the high beta as high as it was 14 years ago, did it make a connection with this? This didn't just happen yesterday, right? This was a part of your life that put you in this protective mechanism of running from a lion, but now you got to be standing over punts and be in a different state of awareness, right? Like, how would you connect that? Like, that that number, that high beta, wasn't just that day 14 years ago. Right. That had built over time. Yeah. I think that's what really helped me is that it made, when I realized my brain was kind of stuck in this fast pace chase all the time, it helped me not feel crazy. Mm, yeah. Especially as an athlete, like an elite athlete playing professional golf and having decent success. And yet there's this, this kind of this extra level that I wasn't able to tap into. And I kept thinking that what's wrong with me? 
Like, mm. why am I not capable? And and here's a very specific example. And maybe our golfers out there will, and this will help. I worked with a couple of sports psychologists over the years before I met you. And I just couldn't understand or I, I kept like, I don't get it. I can't do this. And I felt it was my problem. Mm. Like something was wrong with me. Like, I don't I'm not understanding them. And one of those was visualization, which when you think of golf, it's really important to visualize a golf shot. And a lot of times they would tell me to shut my eyes. Well, you're speaking a little bit. (laughs) Because what neurofeedback taught me is that when I close my eyes, my brain does the opposite of what it should do. Instead of slowing down and getting more into those creative brain waves, mine just kept escalating which fits to my storyline, which I didn't quite know yet. Mm -hmm. But when I put all these pieces together, I was already off tour. I read Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps the Score book. Awesome book. And and I had this aha moment that, because he talks about neurofeedback in there. And and he mentioned somebody closing their eyes and getting more activated rather than less activated. And I'm like, that's me. Mm Mm-hmm. Like there, there are reasons why I couldn't visualize when these sports psychologists were asking me to visualize. And it was because my brain is in stuck in this high beta, fast moving pace. Yeah. And there was in with your history of trauma, that was a protective thing, right? Like, right. There, there comes times in our lives that we do need to sleep with one eye open in a sense, because, and it's hard to recover. It's hard to let down because we're in a crisis situation. The guy in the foxhole, he's not chilling out, right? He's been getting a cat nap here and there. He is wired for sound. Why? Because he's trying to protect himself in the foxhole. And when somebody has a history of trauma, there's a moment when your brain and body did some amazing things for you. Right right? It protected you. It kept you sane, right? It, it kept you intact by going into this sympathetic crisis management, adrenaline on fire, not time to rest. Let's go, go, go. And it, it was good for that moment. But now it's later, right? And you're on the 18th green doing a putt and you're carrying like these chains onto you of this other person that needed to be that way, but you can't be that way and hit a putt. You can't hit it that way four days, right? I mean, is that, did, am I describing that correctly or how yeah, would you add, add to that? That's a great description. And I, I did not know that for most of my career. And it's as we've worked with neurofeedback, breathing, vision, we haven't even talked about vision yeah, yet. We haven't gotten into that. <laughs> that, that all of these, the this information, these thing tools, these practices that I'm learning is bringing all of that big picture together. And so even last summer at the senior open, I went back into that crisis management mode and it impacted my putting. Yeah. And it's not a life or death situation. The difference today versus 14 years ago is I can now step back and like, oh yeah, there it was again. I don't need to be doing that. Now, what do I want to do differently or what do I need to do for myself to help myself do something differently? Yeah, it's, it's still the fabric of who you are, 
right? Like you can never take trauma away from somebody or a significant loss. I mean, it's, those are part of who we are. It's that ability, I think, to be able to have the nervous system, be able to shift out of not stuck in that state. That's what happens in PTSD, right? Is people are now out of their military situation or whatever that is, but they're still experiencing life in that protective crisis mode and they can't escape. And I think a lot of people, kind of like what you were talking about earlier, we see these physiological things like my heart's racing, I'm anxious, and we want to just push it down. But what you're describing is you actually started to look at that and started to understand why is my heart racing? Why am I breathing fast? Why am I thinking this way? Nobody's, a lion's not chasing me right now, right? Right. I mean, do you remember when that shift started happening, what that was like for you? I think it was kind of a gradual process for me. Like in, I think, because I was very persistent in training and doing neurofeedback and I had a lot of hours underneath me. And then I went on doing life. And even the moment of like, when I had to make the de- the decision to do my own nonprofit, like that was a trauma moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Greg was part of my beginning. Yeah. So I'm so glad he's helping you now. And so I think it, for me, because I kept in it, it's been a gradual process. And I think in the last podcast, I mentioned that there's been these stacking stones mm-hmm. for me. So like the work we did 14 years ago was the foundation of the next phase of work that I did, which was counseling and which that built. So your work that I did with you didn't disappear. It was a part of that. And then those two things went on to where I did some somatic work. And now that's a part of the whole foundation. And so it's just been this layering process for me. And it's not easy. And I just want our listeners to know that everything we're talking about is not easy or doesn't come overnight. And I think even to kind of dummy it down for the golfer, like the average Joe Jill golfer out there, the amount of times that if I step up onto the golf, like a social round of golf with friends or new people and they're like shaking in their shoes Mm. because they're playing with me and I'm like, I'm just a normal person. Let's just go have some fun. And yet they're shaking on the insides. Now they may not admit it, but if I asked them, so what is that about? Right. So that's a somatic symptom. Can I jump in there? Because I have been that I have been the average guy that has stepped onto the tee box with Tracy a number of times. And she's the nicest person that I know. I I met Tracy through you, Doc, way back in 2010 or 11 or something like that. But I'll tell you, it, it is that sort of pressure we put on ourselves because Tracy, she's the nicest person you will ever meet. And she never makes anybody feel bad. But for The average Joe golfer who goes out there, it's about layering these expectations on yourself. I don't want to look bad. I don't want to top a drive in front of Tracy Hansen. All the different ways that we layer these pressures and these expectations, these fears on ourselves that we're going to embarrass ourselves in front of somebody, that our image is going to be damaged. How much of that is just self-imposed? I mean, do we in a sense sabotage our, our own performances? Yeah. And being like you talked about, Tracy, being present and aware. But I guess it's got to be tricky for these golfers. I go back to the beginning of this conversation when you're talking about these people that are 
like on the bubble, like their career and what they've strived for their whole life is tied up into what do I do at Q school and how do I perform the last five weeks? How do you not connect that with, you know, who your identity and how do you separate that from who you are? And the flip side. Your self-worth, right? Yeah, the flip side is some people do the opposite, right? They're very successful. And that becomes their identity, but they, they're awful in relationships. Right. <laughs> so I think there is a groundedness. And when you said awareness and presence in the last podcast, that's what it is. It's that awareness of this event does not define me, right? I am fearfully and wonderfully made despite anything that go, goes on. But we do want to master this creation, this brain and body. Right. Uh, let's finish up with this. Any words that you would have for for young golfers? We've been doing a lot with collegiate golf the last um, two months. And shout out to all the schools out there that are doing their vision program and doing their breathing program. Fantastic work. Let's take somebody, not Doc telling you about any of this, but let's see what Tracy's got to say. Somebody who's been down the road has seen everything you're going to see when it comes to golf. What would you have to say to those people out there that are just just starting this journey? Well, well done for jumping on board. I really, I think if I put it into a nutshell statement, I would say the, the way athletes are trained today, physically, nutritionally, the way they have resources mentally and not so much emotionally yet, but that's coming and their skill development, Mm -hmm. especially in golf is happening at younger ages. Players are getting better and ready to play in high pressure situations at an earlier age. The next dimension for performance is inner armor. Mm -hmm. And so being an 18 to 21 year old and getting the chance to train your eyes through the vision program to learn how to breathe, not only just for playing golf, but how to study, taking tests relationally at home, and then getting to work in the brain and establishing this foundation at this age when their brains are still developing. Yeah. Right. They're not even fully developed yet. Like you could, I, I really don't, think you could do anything more at such a small increments of time that would bring great benefits. That's awesome. Well, thank you for speaking that. I know you're speaking from experience and it's been really neat to see the path now 14 years later that all of this training has taken us going upstream. And we never had any idea when we met at Charlie's at the facility there this was the journey we were going on, but it's so exciting to see you helping these young golfers that are really stuck in a very difficult spot and you have access to them. I mean, just shout out to you. Great, great work. And I'm just so glad that we've had an opportunity to be a part of that and have a little bit of the ripple effect that's going on there. Yeah, I appreciate that, Doc. And it's been great to keep in touch with you over the years and and watch you journey as well. And, and your precision and how you've developed your software and your strategies have, has only gotten better too. Awesome. Greg, you want to wrap us up? Sure. Well, 
All of you out there can learn more about Tracy's important ministry to young athletes, young golfers by going to tracyhanson.com. We encourage you to go there, learn more about the important work she's doing and maybe find a way to support that. And you can learn more about Doc and the important work that he's doing, not only with athletes, but ordinary people and that he can do with you by going to forgeinnerarmor.com. This has been the Inner Armor Podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Would you please follow or subscribe and make sure to leave us a review or comment. You can learn more about Inner Armor, Dr. Royer, and how to perform at your potential by going to forgeinnerarmor.com.